hello there. Hello, my friend. How are you? Can you hear me well? Yeah. Can you hear me fine? My, my connection is a bit slow, but I hope there's not too much one background noise and two uh, cuts in the connection. It's okay. No matter what happens, we'll, we'll get an episode out of it. Um, so I would like to have you introduce yourself just kind of like um kind of maybe mention how we kind of sort of got um to know one another um kind of our our early conversations and just kind of uh uh who it is that you are my friend and what it is that you do all right um i study geology i'm from south brazil I I am a communist for a bunch of years now, but I've only recently organized. And well, I've known you from your Instagram. Uh, we followed some pages mutually. And eventually, I don't really recall who started following who first, but I've well seen your, your posts on Instagram love the content you brought about, the critiques you made, which is uh, a lot of subjects that I don't usually see American quote-unquote socialists, communists, leftists in a broader sense critique. And I've quite loved your, the subjects you brought about, your content. And well, started commenting on some of your posts, recommending books and you know, cheering you. <laughs> and uh, well, it's been a while. We've been, we've started talking to each other directly. It's been really nice, you know, having, having a talk with people abroad from a different perspective, even though you're also a Marxist, there's different phenomena and different perspectives on many different topics from the US and from Brazil and from the world. So it's been really, really nice talking to you, but uh, let me talk about a little bit more about myself. Um, I come from the south of Brazil, the more developed part, but I've been raised on a more politized background than most Brazilians. My father has been a communist for most of his life. My grand father was a communist before him and even though my mother she wasn't that politicized she didn't participate much in politics she always had uh, opinions shared from the left and so on so since since i've been a kid i've been very critical to many things that most of my school mates weren't <laughs> you know uh and that with a lot of readings, a lot of my own opinions. I haven't inherited everything from my parents. Uh, they've always given me a lot of freedom on choosing who we read, what I read. Uh, we had a, a, an open debate back at home, so we could always discuss the topics freely. But it's kind of a coincidence I've gone the same path of them based on all that freedom the liberal propaganda I've always come across here in Brazil. They've 
have not forced me to only read Marxist people, people from the left, etc. But uh, through debates, freedom, and my own readings, my own perspectives, I've come to Marxism. And today I have some very heated discussions with my parents and not only them about politics because I have some very different opinions to some things they believe in, even on the Marxist field. So it's, it's, it's not as homogeneous as people might think it is, you know, like it's not only because you call yourself a Marxist, you're going to agree with every Marxist out there. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, a little bit about myself. Uh, I can definitely say that a lot of, I think we all know how good Marxists are at arguing with one another and others, as well as anarchists being good at it as well, Um, uh, especially online. Um, So I don't think that's necessarily um, any different than a lot of our experience, but it's very cool that you were able to have um, kind of like a more heightened experience at that because that was your family, that was your your parents, and you were able to learn that and kind of express these opinions and, and be able to foster a healthy and and um, expansive kind of environment of learning from such a young age because I think that's something a lot of us uh, don't receive. So that's that's incredible. And that, that's really cool, my friend. Um, thank you for sharing that about mm-hmm. yourself. Um, I wanted to, uh, so first and foremost, we discussed this once. I was the one who followed you first because I do this thing for my podcast, social media, where I follow people who follow mutual pages um and i think i followed you for a few months even before you um started commenting on my stuff i don't know how long you were viewing it for but yeah i just like to like you said kind of like follow and like cheer along you know fellow communists and marxists across kind of like especially internationalist lines because that is like you said something that um a lot of western leftists um really fall short on um, we have some, you know, chauvinistic or very um, liberal views on on what it is to be communists and socialists and Marxists when it comes to how to support the global working class and proletariat. Um, but yeah, I um, I am very thankful for your friendship and for your conversations, and I'm very thankful for you um, for coming on. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, um, but, um, so let me, uh, just hop right into some questions, uh, that we've kind of discussed and wanted to go over. Um, so a few things first about yourself. Um, so what is it that really initially, made you consider yourself a Marxist rather than, say, a socialist, anarchist, or a liberal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Nice to start with. I, for 
a lot of my my sorry for a lot of time in my young age i considered myself a social democrat i liked uh you know leftist ideals welfare state that kind of thing but i wasn't confident enough to bring myself to the socialist field to to communists even uh i saw in my history books some some like for the soviet union some you know the leftist goals and ideals but you know coming from a capitalist country uh you always will get a lot of propaganda western propaganda liberal propaganda anti-communist propaganda especially coming from a place that has been on the, the western side of things from day one of the cold war and i always saw like a lot of problems in the eastern bloc and the the, the real socialist experiments experiences you know and i didn't have the confidence to call myself that and well i started reading more more history especially latin american history because uh even though the 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 colonial elites of brazil might think of themselves as, as a continuation to the european uh elites and the, the mm. colonizers from portugal and other countries we're not western we're latin american we have a lot of backgrounds from indigenous people and uh black african cultures and you know uh People from central countries like the U.S. and Europe don't consider us a part of the West. They consider us something separate. So why should we consider ourselves as to be like that? That has been something that got me isolated from my <laughs> schoolmates for quite a while. All of them thought themselves to be like a direct continuation from Europe, even though they were uh, racially different. Uh, they, they saw themselves as you know, Western enough. And there was me reading Latin American history and seeing how colonialism didn't end, how colonialism kept going on even after we got our independency and how always socialists were on our side fighting against imperialism. So the more I read, the more I saw great Marxist, socialist, communist critiques to the, the, the liberal hegemony and, you know, the, the forgot the word, uh, the main ideas, you know, that, that people reproduce. Ideology. That, yeah, ideology. Uh, the liberal ideology that's dominating here. So I always saw great critique to that. I've never called myself a liberal in that sense, because uh, being a leftist here in Brazil is different from being a liberal. Uh, that's something very different from from the US. Uh, but anyways, uh, calling yourself liberal here is going to the right. And I always saw great critiques and great actions, great deeds, not only theoretical criticism, but uh, great actions into making people's lives better, fighting imperialism, trying to get a real independence to take place throughout the whole of Latin America from Mexico to Patagonia, to Chile and Argentina, you know. And from, from that practice, that day-to-day -day action, 
throughout most of our history, I've started seeing a, a beacon of hope <laughs> in the socialist field, even though I wasn't confident enough. And from reading more and more and more and seeing more critique and, you know, removing all those layers of liberal propaganda, uh, I started losing my fears to call myself a socialist and eventually a communist. And I started reading Marxist theory for good, uh, started seeing on my day-to-day -day life, not only history books, but, you know, day-to-day -day politics, uh, the Marxist field always being the more, the, the one that has the best critiques, the, the ones that go more, more in depth with things that don't only, uh, you know, scratch the surface or critique the, the appearance of things, but really go deep in social analysis, criticize the phenomena, don't forget uh, one phenomena in order to, to criticize another. Analysis that all, are always integrated. And, you know, I always admire the Marxist field uh, to the point I started feeling myself like, God, I, I follow them, but I do not help them on their struggle. I, I really should join because I'm here just reading, seeing people and clapping to the great things they do, cheering to their, their goals and everything, but I'm not helping. So if I really want Latin America to be independent of imperialism someday, I really should get started. And here am I in the Brazilian Communist Party <laughs> today. That's very awesome, my friend. And that's, I feel, you know, from someone who has only been so lucky as to read about the struggle of Latin America, I would figure that a lot of people kind of um, went a similar path, especially in their, their younger ages. Um, I think mm -hmm. that even someone such as Fidel Castro took a, a very similar path in his young age, going to be a lawyer um, wanting to do um, struggle in, in, through different means. Um, for a long time, I think a lot of different, um, not only Latin American revolutionaries that we know, but also uh, ones that we may never hear about um, took a very similar path. Um, so that's cool because you also got to kind of foster that while you were kind of in a healthy environment at home and able to expand upon and grow those ideas, um, which I'm sure was really incredible. Um, but speaking of like your living, what um, what has living in Brazil like really done to influence your political analysis and kind of your like social and, and economic like beliefs? Well, I guess I already partially answered that. And in the beginning, because all the Latin America sense of, of belonging, you know, <laughs> but uh, as as a third world country, quote unquote, <laughs> we we always see the, the the crisis of capitalism hit the hardest. Uh, we always see the the contradictions, the out of placeness of the liberal discourse that the, their speech that their ideals don't really fit here and the contradiction contradictions here are way more highlighted you know capitalism is it walks snaked here and all its barbarity 
Uh, and well, seeing that from birth is something that really shapes you in, into, you know, if you're buying into the liberal ideology here, it, it, you're going to be like so alienated from reality that uh, when, when you really get to see the world beyond your, the comfort of your home, your, your sphere of uh, socializing, you and your mid-class friends, etc. It's really a, a bath of cold water. Uh, so the left here uh, starts on the social democrats and goes all the way to the anarchists. And it's always been heavily present in our history and in our present. So uh, coming from this background, whenever I look to central countries and people who are liberals calling the, themselves leftists, really, it's, that's like one of the biggest differences I notice. But what else can I say? The critique to imperialism as well is something that if you're not anti-imperialist, what the fuck are you doing in Latin America? Like, how can you still uh, believe Latin America someday is going to reach uh, the status of a developed uh, region and every country in Latin America is going to be a developed nation? Just all what they need is catching up. Like, really? You really have to be absent uh, from any library. You must have not read anything from the history books of Latin America to think something like that. And the news, whenever some scheme here or there is uncovered, whenever some political crisis appears, you always see a pattern of countries in the global south, Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia, uh, they get exploited to their core. Like so many people die of starvation, lose their jobs and to never recover, lose their bare minimum conditions of life they had acquired in the last cycle of growth, you know? And it, you really have to be alienated from reality, not to have a bare minimum critique to imperialism coming from, from a seriously and i think that's something that really shaped my way of seeing things because come on so many people buy into the the liberal propaganda that no no imperialism uh, theory about the world that does does not correspond to reality some say no longer but it, it's never been something valid but it's appears naked in front of our, our eyes on a day-to-day -day basis here in the third world. So you cannot ignore that as many people in the central countries do. That's something that's impacted me throughout my political growth and development, you know. Definitely. And, you know, as, speaking as someone who grew up in a a capitalist, um, imperialist country. Um, it's it's honestly quite mind blowing to think how much effort I've had to really dedicate to kind of de-educating myself and and relearning 
um, especially history, um, which it sounds like, um, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism are, are so uh, have their teeth sunk so deep in the world that even in countries that are suffering under imperialism, there are those who, similarly to myself, have to actually dedicate time to unlearning, um, even within countries where they are being oppressed in that way. That's incredible, how the strength of the ideology, um, and really kind of puts an extra point to me on the necessity to really organize and educate because that's how immense the kind of hegemonic like you said um uh, control of the ideology across the world um but i just uh, also wanted to ask you uh speaking of you know kind of the need to get organizing um you have mentioned that you know throughout your growth you had kind of cheered on those who were organizing and 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 doing things of that nature and then you you know began doing that yourself um as someone who is new to organizing and i think a lot of western leftists are quite new to organizing um i wanted to ask you just just for fun you know kind of what is one of your you know most favorite experiences that you've been able to have um, while organizing? Oh, wow, that's a broad question. Uh, what do I like the most <laughs> in my day-to-day activities? I mean, removing the layers of, of propaganda, of ideology, as we were talking about, is something necessary, even even though the, the reality and the contradictions here in, in, in the third world are very highlighted, uh, it's well seems to me that compared to central con- countries, it's easier to, uh, you know, break down the the ideology from reality. But still, it's something that needs to be done because people are so poorly educated on purpose, so they that they don't see uh, the, the 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 crisis of the ideology. You know, like the contradiction in itself that how out of place those ideas seem like, oh, let's reduce uh, the minimum wages, let's lower the minimum wages so that the, the bosses can pay um, the workers more, you know? Like, <laughs> seriously, who the fuck believes that? But yeah, some people do because they've gotten so indoctrinated uh, into the liberal ideology, uh, you really have to break that. And making that happen, seeing that breakdown into more people is something really awesome because uh, you're making them see reality for the first time, even though it's been right in front of their eyes their whole life. You see reality with a different eye once you remove the layers of ideology. And uh, bringing answers to questions that people always make but never have a proper answer by the, the ideology is really something awesome. Uh, helping people in their day-to-day life uh, without just telling them to 
wait for the government to fix thing. Sorry, wait for the government to fix things. Wait for some NGO to come here and help you. Uh, wait until you get a, a better job. No, there's no time for waiting. You know, when we go and talk to people, see their problems in their day-to-day -day lives, and try to one bring an answer to the questions that liberals can't answer, that the ideology can't answer, or it does answer, but answers very poorly. Uh, breaking that ideology is awesome. Second, helping people for real, not just out of speech, you know, like making reality take place and really help people, be it on a uh, subjective way, that, for example, making people feel better with themselves, even though uh, ideology would tell them they, they're unnatural, they're weird, they're uh, inferior, etc. But also in a material way, you know, you know help improve the, the conditions of living on the peripheries, help people not starve. Really, the, the, how thankful people are for that and how they look to you with some, some shine in their eyes, you know, uh, out of gratitude, but also willing to follow you into the and keeping the struggle alive, helping more people around themselves. Because ideology also makes you only think for yourself, even though your problems are shared by everyone around you. And once people have been uh, breaking from the, the chains of ideology and helped with their problems, uh, and they have the, the bare minimum conditions to breath, you know, like. You don't have to work every single day of your life, every single hour of your day in order to survive. When you have minimum room to breath, you can think beyond the box, you know? And if ideology is still there, they're only gonna think for themselves. Even if they have some room for breathing, that's what NGOs do. They, they give you the room to breath, but they don't remove the box as a whole. So. When people have the free time to think and to plan onto their future, they're going to plan for themselves. At max, they're going to plan it for their family. But once you do both things at once, you help people and you remove the ideology, they can think for the whole, their whole community, for the people around themselves, to, to the people in the neighbor, neighborhood. You know, like there's so many people in favelas here in Brazil, in shanty towns. And the problems are shared once you fix your own problems and you can think and see beyond that, you can see that you can, you can also help your neighbor, your friend, your uncle, your cousin to overcome their problems as well. And that's organizing, that's really seeing things beyond the propaganda and making a difference. So it's, it's so awesome conciliating these two things, you know, that's what I think I like the most. That's awesome. Indeed, my friend, very, very incredible that you get to do that, that you dedicate yourself to that, um, that your group has the ability to go out and uh, facilitate 
uh, help like you are. Um, that really is uh, due to dedication and due to really focusing on organizing and, and helping people and, and ultimately seeking the truth. Like you said, fighting propaganda because um, as Che says, um, ultimately the, the strongest tool is the truth. Um, and we want to be able to give the people, uh, the truth so that they can see clearly their issues and be able to find a way to dig themselves out, uh, together. Um, but just, yeah, exactly. Um, but one last question about yourself. I wanted to ask, you know, you folks are doing a lot. Um, you yourself are doing a lot. Uh, right before we got on this call, you were teaching English to a friend of yours. That's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. You translate books. You do a lot of great work. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what is an aspiration or a, a goal that you have for um, maybe yourself or that uh, you might have for your collective and, and what you are, are building currently? Uh, well, the, the greatest goal of all is seeing a socialist revolution take place once again. Uh, but since that's like a common goal for, for all Marxists and most socialists, at least here in Latin America, uh, it's perceived in very different ways. So. Uh, the way I see it, it's kind of like that my party shares that vision as well, is in a way being able to re- regain the pride of our own history, uh, the pride of the Marxist history that has been stolen from us ever since the, the Soviet Union fell, the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, regaining hope from that pride because... There's so many movements ideology does to us. Uh, we talked about some of them, like not being able to see the people around you, the, the, the crisis around yourself, but you're also unable to see history, to see uh, historical movements that have happened. Uh, and capitalism and its ideology place itself, places itself in a standard of like being a quote unquote civilizer of the world, that the, the, the capitalist ideology and it as, itself as a mode of production as being the, the greatest, um, forgot the word, <laughs> sorry driver there there we go the greatest driver of social change and improvement of quality of life improvement of uh you know standards that people aspire greater things and beyond go go beyond the the box beyond their barrier uh by following capitalism and well it's partially true because in a historical moment yes capitalism was a revolutionary way of seeing things and a revolutionary mode of production that uh, has resolved many problems from the mode of production that came before it. But currently it's not a revolutionary 
theory or mode of production anymore. And it aspires only to keep things the same. And it's not anymore uh, a driver of, of change, of improvement in people's lives. Uh, it has only been for a very short time in a very localized uh, part of the world that is the, the central countries of today. And for a very specific group of people, that is white, cisgender, uh, heterosexual men who own the modes of production, who own land, who own industries, who are uh, owners of great amount of wealth, banks, etc. Uh, and socialism, on the contrary, has always been a way of seeing the world as a whole and of trying, aspire, aspiring social change, not for a specific class, but towards the end of classes, towards the complete emancipation of humanity in a way that we don't see social differences. We don't see race as a defining feature of people anymore. We don't see their gender as a defining feature of people anymore. Of course, it will be uh, a feature of difference in the sense that uh, you're, you have your difference as a human being from me, but not as a sense of a social structure that's completely shaped around exploiting people to their core just because they've come from a specific background that's not the rolling one right there now. And um, I've gone on rambling, <laughs> kind of <laughs> lost my focus a little bit, but you know, preparing to break that ideology and set people free uh, means also regaining the pride that the socialist history has not been a history of quote unquote Stalinism, of gulags, of people getting murdered like liberal ideology says. The communist history has been a history of, for example, the Soviet Union being, being one of the first countries in the world to completely give rights to women to participate in politics. Uh, one of the first countries to completely uh, eradicate, to completely kill the, the notion of race so that many people who were racialized in the, the American continent as a whole, who went there, felt themselves as human beings for the first time in their lives. Uh, socialism has driven for the emancipation of so many people in so many different worlds and in, in countries and parts of the world. Yeah, sorry. Uh, that it should be something we are so proud of to defend socialism. And ever since the, the, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union fell, we've been stolen of that pride. And consequently, the end of history ideology took place and people see no longer any alternative beyond capitalism. That's something I really aspire to break as well, both by my political actions and by theoretical critique, but mostly political actions, so that people really see uh, an alternative to, to this sea of sorrow, this ocean of misery, poverty, disgrace, and environmental destruction, exploitation of people, etc. And we've been robbed, we've been incapacitated of dreaming of a better world that 
breaks the problems who are inherent to, to, to capitalism. We can only think of minimal reforms, minimal improvements within the system. And that's not how the, the game was played for many generations. We should recover that. We should dream of the future as the people from the, the 50s dreamed, as Vietnamese people who were getting bombed every single day dreamt of a better tomorrow. And the better tomorrow they're living is today. Vietnam is one of the best countries dealing with COVID in the whole world. They had, they've had like one of the lowest cases per capita. And that has been because people way back then had hope in the future. We do not have hope today and we should recover that hope. That hope is overcoming capitalism and structuring a better society through socialism. <laughs> That's it. That's incredible. Um, I, um, I couldn't agree more, my friend. And I think we obviously share in this want. Um, that is why we're here having this conversation. Um, so again, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for um, discussing yourself because, you know, sometimes that's a difficult thing. A lot of us um, aren't used to, you know, having people actually ask. Like I, I noticed, um, I noticed quite often how little of a response I often get from people when I ask them, how are you? Um, because a lot of people are uh, made to believe that no one actually cares. They're just saying that mm -hmm. because they have to. Um, and that's, you know, something maybe small to some. But I think that's, you know, really impactful when you think about the history of human beings and how we have been needed to be connected and taking care of one another for thousands of years. Otherwise, we as a species would not have survived. Um, but yeah, that's just a little, just a little something right there. Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, some kind of broad questions about Brazil, if you wouldn't mind. Um, uh -huh. Let's go so, for it. Yeah. So what is the like general political environment in Brazil? And um, this is kind of a few connected, so I'll read them slowly. So it's not like overwhelming. Um, <laughs> so what is the general political environment in Brazil is the first one. Then uh, what is the general concentration of workers to like rule? Like what is the the... I've heard, there's a word for it in That's Marxist an analysis. Go ahead, say say that again. I'm sorry. Class structure, the social yeah. pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then can you kind of give a little brief explanation of like what the the general working class like ideology is? Kind of connect that together, if that's not too much of an ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, we've discussed some of it, but well. It's, it's very broad. I'm going to be generic in some things. And for anyone looking for more in-depth analysis, you can always message me, uh, be it through, through your page or something like that. And I can give you like reading material because doing a, a social analysis of how Brazil works in a couple minutes in a podcast is really something that's going to be generic. But well, let's try. Brazil is the second country with the biggest concentration of wealth in the world. 
second only to Qatar. And Qatar is a monarchy in the Arab Gulf that uh, its, its main economic driver is oil. And all of the, most of the wealth that comes from oil goes to the, the, the monarchy, the, the, the royal family. So already seeing that is really impactful for me because, okay, there's a monarchy that's very rich in oil and workers are poor in a very, very small country in the Arab Gulf. That's the most, the biggest concentration of wealth in the world. Second to that is a country with 215 million people. That's the fifth, fifth largest country in the whole world, whose economy is so diverse, whose history is so diverse, whose people are so diverse. Still, it's the second one with the most concentration of wealth in the world. <laughs> that's, that's already something to, to think upon, you know? And all of our ana analysis have to contemplate that. If, if you do not contemplate that, how huge concentration of wealth here happens. Uh, you're not doing a good enough social analysis. Come on, liberals, privatizing industries that are publicly owned and removing social grants from the constitution won't help anyone's lives. They have not been helping so far. They, they will not in the future. But anyways. Um, so how's the, the social composition here? We have uh, this, this saying that Brazil is like a mixture of Belgium and India, Belindia, as we would say here, that we have islands of development, mostly state capitals, because we're a federation, just like the US, we have 26 states, one federal district like Washington DC, but it's Brasilia here. Uh, and in these 26 states, mostly the, the islands of wealth and knowledge and, and developed industry, etc., are the state capitals, save by a few very localized cities that are not state capitals yet. They're very important, mostly in the south of Brazil. And those islands, are just like Belgium. They're very well developed. They do have their problems, of course, but uh, people have good education. Many people speak different languages, speak English like me, uh, have some connections to the international market, can uh, have access to uh, top tier technologies, state of the art, uh, you know, uh, communications, etc., and out of those islands, those small Belgiums, as we have a huge country that's like India, rural, backwards, dependent on uh, technology from those islands. That's usually when technology reaches those places. It's uh, it's old, you know. So like, it's very very poor people who work their asses off to get the bare minimum wage that almost doesn't pay anything, people starving. <sighs> it's difficult. And that's not only the countryside. We have some, uh, quote unquote, big 
cities that are just like that, have a lot of problems. So when you look to a picture of Rio de Janeiro, that's the most known Brazilian city out there, you'll almost always recognize shanty towns in the mountains and rich urban landscape by the flatlands. That's a picture of Brazil, even though not every city has a shanty town of itself. Most cities don't even have mountains to have shanty towns up there. Many cities are flat. You either have very poor suburbs and the peripheries of the town and a very rich center, or you have shanty towns of themselves and the peripheries, or you have a, a full city that's uh, lacking a lot of development, a lot of care from the government. The government does, doesn't give a fuck. It's just there to, to get money. And very few industries, sometimes just a single industry that kind of rules the city, the, the, the town, uh, or there's none, and it's a totally agrarian one with uh, barons who are huge landlords and they're, they kind of kind of control most of the jobs in there. Uh, it's really complicated, but people who come from, from those islands who are like Belgium, they think themselves to be Western. They think themselves to be a continuation of Europe. They think themselves to be... Um, a part of the great game that's capitalism, that they have good enough opportunities, that they go make a student ex exchange period in France or in some other developed country like the US, Britain, something like that. And the people in the countryside, they, they can't think of their future much farther than the coming weeks and months, you know? And I don't mean countryside, only the, the agrarian landscape. I mean the small towns, the peripheries. That's how Brazil works. Uh, the general concentration of workers, that's like 99.9999% of the population, even though there's a mid-class that thinks themselves to be part of the elite, that would be like top 10 maybe 15, 20% of the, the, the working class that do enjoy some partial uh, good enough standards from those Belgium islands, you know, and um, they buy into ideology much, much more easily because that's one, I think from, from their birth, they have access to the best schools, they have more access to uh, television programs, to internet access, and there's a lot of liberal propaganda and ideology being fed into them from those sources. Uh, they usually come from less oppressed backgrounds, white people, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's really complicated because we've had a, a left field here in Brazil that's always been big because the contradictions are very explicit, you know, you look into a picture of Rio de Janeiro, you always see the favelas and the rich as fuck, high buildings, sometimes skyscrapers, that kind of thing. And since the contradictions are so naked, the left has always been somehow big here, working for the poor people, for the oppressed people. But ever since the 70s to, to and until 2016, 
we've had the dominant uh, field of, of the left, that's the SOC Dems, the Social Democrats, that have been aspiring to grow the middle classes, improve everyone's quality of life, to bring Brazil to development and fix the problems that plague our country, uh, diminish poverty, that kind of thing. And they've been in power for 13 years in the beginning of the, the 21st century. And well, they didn't do that. <laughs> they say to themselves that they have done that. Some social indexes say like, oh, Brazil has finally ended with famine. Mm -hmm. D that doesn't mean people are well fed. That just means that they don't starve to death. Um, some other social indexes say, oh, Brazil has eliminated um, extreme poverty. That's, uh, according to the indexes, is people gaining less than $1 per day. And that's awesome. People now gain $2 per day. They're not on the indexes anymore. Are they living well? No, they're not. Uh, and the more the social democrat strategy, the, the way they see the Brazilian reality and what they define to be their goals, the more that strategy developed, the more the people started seeing that it's not really helping them get better. The indexes may say that, the propaganda may say that, there's very uh, emotional speeches may say that, but to people who get evicted from their already poor conditions of living to in order for a huge stadium for the World Cup to be built and they have to leave their very poor homes to live in a shanty town, definitely their lives haven't gone gotten better because the World Cup came to Brazil and Brazil can finally be on the spotlights of global capitalism. So ever since uh, 2016, there's been a social crisis here in Brazil that is a crisis of representation. The, the, the people, not as a whole, not homogeneously, I'm being generic here, but the people don't aspire to the social democrats ideals as much as they did before, the poor people, because the, the mid-classes have always always aspired to liberal goals. Uh, and that brought about many problems because if the left, quote unquote the left, was dominated by SOC Dems and people don't feel represented by the SOC Dems anymore, they don't feel like they can really cling on to the hopes that the social democrats and their speeches brought about what do we trust who do we follow what new strategy what new way of seeing uh, the country will suit for the poor people one of those possibilities has been fascism represented by Jair Bolsonaro who's currently our president and has made the contradictions way fucking worse and, you know, well, a lot of problems we can discuss afterwards, but that's not being the only alternative. The Sockdams have tried to renew their speeches, give 
people new hopes, but have been sort of failing to really recover their popularity and their hegemony. Another alternative has been the classic liberals who are taking, who are, you know, using the opportunity to make people like believe that if they have the same aspirations, the same goals as the mid-class, they will become the mid-class dot. That doesn't happen. And it's always problematic, but they have not grown as much as fascism has. And there's the radical left. That's the field I, I put myself in. And revolutionary ideals have been growing on the masses, even though it's been slowly, even though uh, many of the radical left parties and organizations and collectives and groups have had a lot of problem to, uh, you know, see reality and be an answer to the people's problems after the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet bloc, etc. We've been reorganizing for the last 30 years, many different ways with many different perspectives, but the one goal to have a revolution take place and defend socialism, that's a common element. Uh, and we've been growing growing very nicely to the point we're having huge demonstrations here in Brazil against Bolsonaro, against fascism. We're taking down his popularity. He's like, he used to have a, a core of supporters at around 30% of the Brazilian population. That's at least what the indexes tell us. Uh, and that core wasn't affected by any crisis the Brazilian politics went through in the last two or three years. But recently, the radical left has been doing some very good criticism and using very well the opportunities that the situation has given us. And we've managed to shake that 30% core of popularity that fascism has, and it's going downhill. It's going to, it, it's almost going below 20% support. Uh, within one and a half to two months of protests going on slowly, but the protests have been growing. We're having like the last protest we had, it happened in nearly 500 cities throughout Brazil and the world. Uh, more than 1 million people were out in the streets, so like one every 200 Brazilians were in the streets protesting amidst a pandemic. And the pandemic here hit terribly hit the worst mostly thanks to fascism uh, we can discuss that later as well but yeah i think that's that's the scenario the, the political scenario of brazil summarized and very generically addressed in i don't know 10 minutes <laughs> yeah no i think you did a fantastic job though you did a really good job kind of covering um just about you know, everything that you could cover in such an analysis. Um, so here, why don't we, because we're at 55 minutes, why don't I cut it right here? Um, and then I will send you another link and we can just kind of continue. Um, and it'll okay. be, uh, it'll be just like, I'll just trim it. <laughs> sure. Uh, so yeah, the, this episode we talked about how Brazil is 
China and a very broad analysis and a very broad talk about ideology and the third world. So the next episode, we can go more in depth with that. Just fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I planned on just like, you're, you're good to record right now, right? Because I, I didn't know. Okay, cool. Because we can just continue with kind of like the second question in that email underneath um, questions <laughs> about Brazil. Um, yes. Yeah, cool. All righty. Um, it'll take a moment because, you know, internet. But I will send you the the new link, and I will see you in a second. Okay. All righty. <laughs>